I'm going to take a few minutes of sustained reflection on a passage in John 19, and I would encourage you to turn there, take your Bibles and turn there. If you'd like to use the Bible that's in front of you, you'll find it on page 906. 906. John 19, and, well, actually, we'll begin in verse 28 and read through verse 37. After this, Jesus, knowing that All was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we see verse 31 as Jesus hangs on the cross. The Jews are starting to get anxious. Nervous. Uh, And it's not because they're beginning to rethink if they might have made a huge mistake. Um, It's not because the guilt of condemning an innocent man to death is starting to weigh on them. It's the fact that they are inching closer and closer to the holy day of the Sabbath. And it's not just any Sabbath day. You see verse 31, we're told in parentheses, for that Sabbath was a high day. It's a really special Sabbath day because it fell on the, uh, the week of Passover. It was, it was the uh, Sabbath of Passover week. And so what's the problem? Well, the Jews knew that God's law had some serious things to say about dead bodies and where they could be and what happened if you were near them. Deuteronomy in particular said that men, dead men, weren't, left to, be, weren't to be left hanging on the gallows uh, because they were a curse. And in, in hanging there, uh, they would curse the whole land. Their presence would curse the whole land. This is what the law said, Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23. That's not three chapters. That's chapter 21, verses 22 through 23. It says, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day 
Why? For a hanged man is cursed by God, and you shall not defile the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So, uh, being hung from a tree, being crucified, uh, was a sign of God's curse upon the person being killed. But that curse would emanate from them and pollute the whole land. And so they were to bury that individual promptly. And so you see why they're getting anxious now. What a, what a bummer it would be if on their special holiday, the whole land was defiled and they couldn't feast together. They couldn't have their, their holiday lamb that they'd been looking forward to all year. And so they plead with Pilate, right? The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken um, and that they could be taken down. They asked Pilate to speed up the process uh, by breaking the legs of the men. By doing this, the criminals then would not be able to hoist themselves up and and uh, because they couldn't do that, their diaphragms would collapse and they would actually die quickly from suffocation. And so this is uh, their request to, to speed things along. And the request comes under the pretense of a commitment to God's law, which we just read in Deuteronomy. And so they're prevailing upon Pilate, who's not a Jew, to help them fulfill their Jewish customs. This is not Roman custom. Roman custom is the exact opposite. You leave dead men hanging for as long as possible to teach a lesson, to to scare some of the citizens straight. And in fact, they would leave the corpse up there until there wasn't a corpse left, until the birds had come and pecked away everything that was hanging. But here in Jerusalem, the people are asking for a special exception because it would go against God's law to keep the bodies up. But not only that, this is a really special week uh, and really important week to make sure we're keeping God's Law. This is actually not the first time that John has portrayed the Jews as being people who are really anxious uh, to make sure they maintain purity according to the old covenant system. If you look back just a page or two to John 18, this is what we read at the very beginning of this whole ordeal with Jesus. It says in chapter 18 and verse 28 that the Jews then led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters, that's Pilate's headquarters, It was early in the morning, and they themselves, though, did not enter Pilate's house. Why? So that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So in order to remain ritually clean, they would not go into a Gentile's residence. To do that would make them ceremonially unclean. And then there's that bummer again. We can't have that holiday feast we've been waiting to have all year, right? So that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So do you see what's happening here in our text as they plead with Pilate to move things along and to get those bodies down from the cross? The Jews have fooled themselves into thinking that their observance of the law of God has them on good terms with God. And I think we can easily slip into that same error. When we think that our religion makes us right with God, well, actually the exact opposite happens. Religion, I say this very very carefully, not flippantly at all, because uh, what we're doing tonight is religious. I'm not against religion. It's kind of my job. It's all bound up there. But I think you'll understand what I mean if I put it this way. Religion for religion's sake damns you. Damns you. Religion for religion's sake. That is to say, religion that does not have at its heart devotion to God. A desire to know 
Christ better, uh, a desire to please him and to exalt him and, and to serve him. If that's not what you're about in your religion, then your religion is doing you no good. Actually, it's doing you a lot of harm because it lulls you into this sense of false security. Because the, the religious people, the very religious people of this world are, are some of the most self-assured people. And yet they have no reason to be assured because religion doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. And this is the danger here that the Jews aren't recognizing. And it's a danger we might not recognize. I know a number of us have grown up in, in church. A number of us have grown up in in traditional reformed churches, and we, we appreciate our heritage. We, we uh, maybe sometimes wear it as a badge of honor. Are we being religious for religion's sake, though? The, the secular people who deny the supernatural and think that this is all just made up, the secular go to hell denying that God exists. I think we understand that. Here's maybe what we're not um, as, as ready to recognize. That the superficially religious, the religious people of the world, they go to hell thinking that God's their best friend. There's a danger there. A very serious warning to us. Richard Niebuhr once said that religion is not, as it is frequently supposed, a fundamentally virtuous human quest for God. It's rather the final battleground in the struggle between God and human self-esteem. And so, friends, examine your hearts. Why are you here tonight? I'm glad you're here. I'm glad every single one of you is here. But why did you come? Is it because it's the right thing to do? It's It's that time of year where it's a good thing to be in church. Why do you go to church? Is it because it makes you feel like a good person? Why do you say you're Christian? If you say you're Christian, why, why do you say that? Is it because of the things you do? Or is it because of the one whom you love? There is no law keeping that you can perform. There's no service to God you can render. There are no good works that you can do that will mean anything to God if you do not love his son. Do you see the Jews here? We're keeping the law. And he says, yes, but you've killed the lawgiver. Oh, but we're, we're keeping the law. We're, we're obeying your statutes. Yes, but you've murdered my son. Don't you see how much we care about you, God? We're doing the things that you've told us to do. You, you want to say you care about me when you've murdered my only son, my beloved son? The Jews missed it. They don't want anything to defile them from being able to eat the Passover lamb, and yet they defile themselves by being guilty of killing the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. And John wants us to make that connection, that Jesus is the the fulfillment of everything the Passover stood for. He's the fulfillment of the laws that the Jews were paying lip service to. In God's mysterious and at times ironic providence, it is actually through their feigned and superficial Um, interest in keeping the law, their religiosity, uh, their feigned interest in the law, that God actually ultimately fulfills the law through his son. Uh, So what happens in this story? The the, The soldiers get to Jesus in verse 33, but they actually don't break his legs. Um, They're surprised to find out that that he's already dead. 
crucifixions notoriously took a long time to, to kill somebody. It was like excruciating death, which is where we get the term. Um, now, why is Jesus dead before the others? Well, we were told in verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it's finished, and he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. He dies on his own terms. Jesus died on the cross. He did not die by the cross. I lay down my life. Nobody takes it from me. That's why he's already dead when they, when they approach him. But yet, to ensure his death, and likely out of prejudicial hatred, the soldier, one of the soldiers, decides to thrust Jesus through with a spear. And in doing so, two prophecies are now fulfilled. The first is that none of Jesus' bones are broken. And the second is that his side is pierced. Two prophecies. And the one proves that Jesus is the true sacrifice for God's people, that he fulfills everything that the Passover stood for. And so John says, not one of his bones will be broken. Yet Exodus twelve forty six, and the instructions given for the Passover feast, that the lamb shall be eaten in one's house, and you shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. He fulfills that prophecy. The second prophecy comes from Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. They will look on him whom they have pierced. Now, James Montgomery Boyce makes a really impressive observation at this point. He says, as, the, as at the, the fact that they have fulfilled these two prophecies, he says it was the exact opposite of these two prophecies that they were setting out to fulfill. They had come to break Jesus' legs along with the legs of the two thieves, and they had no intention of, at all of piercing his side, yet they ended up fulfilling the prophecies. How can brutal men be kept from one act of violence for which they had specific commandment and be led to enact another for which they had no commandment? There is only one answer. By overruling circumstances, the God who inspired the prophecies made sure that they were fulfilled. Wow. And so, Zechariah 12, we mentioned the second Prophecy, they will look on him whom they've pierced. This is more of a prediction, more than just a prediction that Jesus will be pierced in his side. Zechariah is telling us more than that. You know, when you're reading the Bible and the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, I found it helpful to think of it. It's kind of like a hyperlink when you're, you know, scrolling the web and you click on a link. It takes you to some information, but then it really takes you to more than that, right? It takes you to the entire web page. And there's uh, other uh, sub-pages on that web page. It takes you to a greater context than just what's underlined in that hyperlink. Well, that's kind of Zechariah 12.10 is the link. You click on that, but it takes you to the greater context of Zechariah 12 and indeed Zechariah 13. John wants us to look at what's going on in Zechariah and what's going on there. Well, when we turn there, we find this promise just five verses later from what he quotes in verse 1 of chapter 13. On that day, on the day when his side will be pierced, on that very day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin. On the day his side is pierced, there will be a fountain opened. And that's because the fountain comes from his side. You see, that's what John's telling us. Uh, many people have, have um, puzzled over the medical meaning of verse 34. Not just blood comes out, but blood and water. Uh, what could this mean? And there's a lot of allegories about this. And yet John is, is making it quite clear when he says, I'm telling you the answer, and it's in Zechariah. You go to Zechariah and you see that when the servant of God, the son of God, when God himself is pierced, something happens more than just that he dies. 
He opens up a fountain to cleanse people, to cleanse the very people who would kill him. It's an amazing, it's a staggering prophecy. And so, two things, we're told, happens because Jesus died through these two prophecies. On the one hand, Jesus is the lamb slain to appease the wrath of God. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission, no forgiveness of sins. We're justified. That's the first prophecy. His, his bones are broken. He's the perfect sacrifice. His blood covers us. But then there's more than that. We're also cleansed from sin and unrighteousness. We're sanctified. That's why there's water. Jesus' side is pierced. And John saw it. He wants you to know he saw it. He wants you to believe it. Verse 35. He who saw it, that's him, has borne witness. His testimony is true. He's being very humble. But really, he's saying, my testimony is true. And I know I'm telling the truth. And I'm telling you the truth so that you would believe it. That Jesus died to make a full remission of all of your sins. And not just to forgive you for the sins that you've committed in your past, but even to cleanse you from your present impurities. To make you not just holy and righteous in a legal sense before God, not just to justify you, but to make you a better person. To sanctify you, to cleanse you, to get rid of all those lusts that cling to you, to get rid of that temper that you've had, and to get rid of those, uh, those, those secret sins that nobody else knows about. He knows and he can handle because he has a cleansing fountain Flowing from his wounds. He's that Passover lamb. That sacrifice. He makes us right with God. But then he is the fountain. The fountain. Who cleanses us. And makes us right. To be children of God. To say I'm a Christian. And I'm a Christian because I die to sin. And I live to righteousness. And so what what John's telling us is that when Christ dealt with sin on the cross, he dealt with it entirely. The water and the blood have proved to be the double cure for sin. As we sing in another hymn, not only are we spared its guilt through justification, but we're also saved by its power, from its power, through sanctification. And that's a freeing thing. It's a freeing thing for you to leave tonight knowing sin has nothing on me. Jesus Jesus paid it all. He dealt with it entirely. I have a double cure for the double problem of sin. Not just its guilt, but even its power. Don't you want to be freed from the indwelling power of sin? Don't you want to stop sinning? Even if you're not a believer tonight, maybe sin isn't a language uh, in your vocabulary. You don't talk about that. Uh, let Let me just maybe put it like this. Don't you want to just be a better person? Don't you want to stop doing stupid stuff? Don't you want to stop doing things that hurt people? Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. And of course, when you come to him, you'll find out that, that his answer, it's both immediate and it's lifelong. You're immediately made right before God, justified. And then he's going to say, well, you want to be better. You want to quit doing stupid things. You want to quit hurting people. Well, I got your whole life here on earth to work on you for that. And I'm going to do it. Because I free you not only from the guilt of sin, but from the power of sin as well. Do you want that freedom? Then you have to do the very thing that the Jews did not do. You have to look on him whom you've pierced. See Jesus not as an obstacle in the way of getting you to God, but as the way you get to God. 
Do you see? He's, he's a nuisance to them. Get him off the cross so that we can celebrate our Passover. He's getting in the way of us fellowshipping with God. No, no, no. He is your communion with God. He is your fellowship with God. So look on him, behold him, and love him. And rejoice in this freeing thought that in the heinous sin of piercing the sinless Son of God, the very fountain, indeed the only fountain to cleanse us from such a sin was opened up. This is something that only Christians can say. You know, for the non-Christian, for the unbeliever, the sin of killing the Son of God is, is a sin. It's a crime that they will pay for for eternity. And yet for the Christian, it's all flipped upside down. The very worst sin of all actually has, has paved the way for our deliverance and our salvation. We sang that earlier, and O oh, sacred head now wounded, his death was all for sinners' gain. Isn't this an amazing thing that in the greatest sin of all, which is piercing the Son of God, the, the cleansing fountain that will, that will free me and forgive me for that sin has been opened up. Only a Christian can say that. Our sin means Jesus had to die. And yet if he didn't die, our sins could never be cleansed. What a wonder. What an amazing thing. How will we reflect on that? How will you sit with that truth? These are the words of John Newton. He says, with pleasing grief and mournful joy, my spirit now is filled that I should such a life destroy, yet live by him I killed. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your son. Christ was all anguish that we might be all joy, cast off that we would be brought in, trodden down as an enemy that we would be welcomed as friends, surrendered to hell's worst that we would get heaven's best, wounded that we would be healed. He was pierced for our transgressions, and yet in being pierced, he has cleansed us of our transgressions. What a thought. We have fumbled about tonight trying to put words to express the love of loves that is the cross. Father, you spared not only uh, you spared not your only son so that you could spare us. What do we have? Why, why? Why would you want to save us? It must be all of your mercy, all of your love. Help us now to adore you. By lips and life, by words and deeds, that our every breath would be ecstatic praise, our every step uh, with delight, that Satan has been baffled and defeated and destroyed, that sin is buried in the ocean of reconciling blood, that hell's gates have, have closed and the heaven gates are opened and sinners can enter in. Let the image of Christ crucified that we've reflected on tonight be always imprinted upon our hearts. 
Would the fact that we have the double cure cause us to live in such a way that we would indeed die to sin and live to righteousness? We thank you for the Lamb. We thank you for the Lamb. It's pure and spotless. And we ask that he would indeed cleanse us from our every stain. We pray it in his name. Amen.